in Germany prior to World War II, there were hate speech laws in place. And they were actually used to prosecute Nazi propagandists right before the Nazis took power. So this just drove more, more attention to their ideas. It gave them a platform. It made people say, huh, the government really doesn't want us to hear from them. What do they have to say? Maybe they have something of importance to say. And that's exactly how it works. And then, you know, we, we saw what happened. So the idea that you can just let somebody decide what's hate speech is so dangerous because you're never going to be able to have everyone agree on what's hate speech or what's morally right to say. In fact, there's really no good way to actually legally distinguish good speech from bad speech. And I've learned all this from talking to constitutional lawyers and free speech experts. So I would say, woke people, think about what you're doing. Your suppression of speech is completely gonna destroy your own cause. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Today I'm joined by Sasha White. She is a writer for both Tablet Magazine and Notes from the Underground Substack. She's co-host of the podcast Identity Crisis and also co-founder of the Plebity Free Speech Fund. Today we're going to talk about being a gender-critical 20-something, getting canceled, and still speaking your truth anyway. Sasha, welcome. It's great to have you. Thanks, Stephanie. I'm happy to be here. All right, so tell us about uh, what happened early in your career that led you to starting this free speech fund. Mm -hmm. So in 2020, two years ago, almost to the day, today in August, um, I was fired from my job as an assistant literary agent. And so I basically went through, you know, this huge cancellation experience. And um, I was blindsided by it. I mean, I was, so I was fired for my tweets and I was really outspoken on Twitter about being, about opposing gender identity ideology, transgender ideology. Um, but, but I didn't expect, and I think this was naive. I didn't expect to be fired just with no conversation at all. I was really, I was ready to defend my views in the workplace, but, um, what happened in reality was that there was no conversation at all. And, um, once I was called out on Twitter, that was it. One person, you know, tweeted at my boss saying that I was a vile transphobic bigot and all that. And um, he fired me immediately. So after that, I was messaged by so many people and some of them had gone through similar experiences. And I was new on Twitter and I hadn't really seen much of cancel culture play out before, but it was clear what a serious problem it was. I knew about it in the sense of gender because I had been following very closely the gender wars. But um, it's it was happening to people for other reasons, too, and other topics. And it's really the... Um, 
it's the the regular people, like the commoners who get canceled and whose lives really can get destroyed. Because, you know, you'll have someone like J.K. Rowling, who we hear about all the time with cancel culture. And despite the fact that she, it is terrible what she goes through because of it, she's not someone who is going to be left destitute by losing a job or anything like that. Um, but regular people are. So after I got canceled, I decided to start a fund and we give out grants to people who've been through something similar, who've been punished materially for their speech. That's incredible. How did you pull that together? So prior to my cancellation, um, my dad and I were working on a nonprofit, a website where we were doing like videos and well, actually we weren't doing videos yet. At that time we're doing, I was doing podcasting. And my dad is a web developer, so he's, like, really good at all that stuff, building the website. And he also happens to be a really good writer and really passionate about free speech. Now we both are. Um, So we were working on this nonprofit, and it was just such a natural idea. It was like, you know, we need cancellation insurance or something like that. And we couldn't quite build that in terms of the legal framework of a nonprofit. But what we could do is something sort of akin to a disaster relief fund. That's what our lawyer told us it's most like, because it's kind of a novel thing, cancellation fund. Um, But we, we set that up, we got donations. And, you know, people were really excited to get to contribute because they felt like they could also lend their voice. Wow. So um, have there been any memorable instances that you'd be willing to share of times that someone benefited from this fund? Yeah, so um, we've had a lot of people fired for the same reason as me, for opposing transgender ideology, because those activists are just incredibly rabid, as you know, and they, you know, go after people. They try to ruin people's lives in this vicious way, and they just feel that anything is justified and against anyone. And so there's one example, there's this one, this Canadian woman, French-Canadian woman named Valerie Peltier, and she was working at a women's shelter. And there were abused women there, women out of prostitution, you know, women from the street. And she was someone who, before she kind of turned her life around and started working to support those types of women, she was someone who would have benefited from that service. She was, when she was just a teenager, brought into prostitution and went through all these things and these, you know, horrible exploitation and at the hands of men and came out this radical feminist who fights for herself and went and got an education and then started working in this sector. And she got fired for thinking that men, you know, aren't the same as women and shouldn't have those same services in the same exact places. And so we were able to help her out and give her grants. And she did sue her employer. And I believe she won, ultimately. So we were able to help her with the legal costs. Wow, that's really inspiring. A lot of people live in fear of these sorts of things happening to them, sorts of things that have happened to you. And you were at such a vulnerable time in your career. You were only in your early or mid-20s. This was your first job out of college, I believe. And that's usually a time that people Pretty don't much. feel like they can afford to take any kind of chances. There are people who are much more established in their careers, who have savings, um, but who still feel like they're afraid to take those chances. 
you and I have lived through our own versions of what some people would consider their worst nightmare and go to great lengths to avoid. So I think it's it's inspiring and encouraging that you handled this so well and that you're you're finding a way to live a meaningful life anyway. Um, I'm curious about your thoughts on people living in fear and not taking the kinds of chances that you've taken to express themselves. And particularly, what are your observations on that in your generation? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, like we were talking about before, you know, before we started recording, I'm pretty lonely or isolated among my generation for on on these topics, on gender, on free speech, you know, unless you get into like conservative groups, pretty much the millennial or Gen Z culture at large is super woke. And they kind of tend to think free speech is like a conservative dog whistle, which is pretty hilarious. But um, I mean, there's nothing, there is nothing for you in keeping your mouth shut and going along with this. It's as, as horrible as it is to go through a cancellation, it's wonderful because you can speak your mind and it's, it is freeing. It's cliche maybe to say it, but it's completely true. And, um, you know, what you said about like finding, I think you said this before we started recording, but do you want to keep your mouth shut or do you want to maybe find more meaning in speaking the truth? And that's, that's all there is that that is the ultimate fundamental truth in this, in this situation in life. And there's, I mean, Jordan Peterson said something very good about that. He said, like, you have to pick your poison. You know, you're never going to have a perfect life. You're never going to have a perfect path that's going to go smoothly. And so you have to pick you're going to suffer in some way. Are you going to suffer because of fear and dishonesty? Or are you going to suffer because you stood up and spoke the truth? And um, that's all I can really say to people my age. The problem is, though, I think a lot of them are just genuinely kind of dumb and they believe this stuff. So it's not necessarily just a matter of cowardice. It's also, I think there's like, there's the cowards. There's the bullies, you know, who are really enforcing this stuff. And then there are the people who are just trying to live their lives. And this it doesn't necessarily relate to them at all. So they don't feel they have any relation to it. And I don't advocate for people to go out there and get fired and all those things. But if you do, come apply for a grant mm-hmm. at Levity. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, I mean, our purpose in creating the fund was to encourage people to speak out because... It's not just a matter of the money we're able to give. You know, I wish we could give more. We we don't, at this point, we're not yet able to give enough to like last someone through like a year of cancellation, maybe like a month or so, you know, in terms of what we give right now. But um, our, our goal with it is to give like a really good sum of money. But um, it's also about giving that message. Like we will have your back. It's kind of crowdsourcing the difficulty of standing up for yourself. And the the thing with the woke um, cancel warriors is that they know they can go after your job and get you to shut up. So that's our way of trying to combat that. I sometimes find that 
people approach me, and I'm guessing this happens to you, it happens to anyone who's out there as a public figure saying things that other people are afraid to say, they approach with this kind of like putting us on a pedestal. Like, oh my goodness, you're so courageous. You're so this, you're so that. I could never, I could never, right? And I want to debunk that a little bit, right? Because I, I don't think it really helps anyone. I mean, it's good to admire qualities that you respect in someone. I, I wouldn't want to take that away. Um, and I'm not going to reject the compliments. But I don't think it serves anyone to have this like mystique around those of us who dare to say controversial things because we're you know, we might be gifted in certain departments. We might have more intelligence or more personality traits of one kind or another than like the average human, but we're, we're at, we're just as human as everyone else. Right. And, um, I want to kind of demystify the, the process of going through that because it's scary, right? Just because we can be on the other side of it saying, we we lived to tell the tale and you can do this too, doesn't mean it's not scary. So I'm wondering if you can kind of walk us through your journey moment by moment of what that was like for you to have someone on the internet coming after you, trying to undermine your career at a young age and, and that whole process of having to reorient to what your future was going to look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was, it was horrible. And Um, and I definitely didn't do it on purpose too. you know, like, I want to be clear on that. I wasn't like, okay, I'm going to go sacrifice all of this to speak this truth that, you know, men cannot become women, trans women are men and so on. But, um, it just happened to me, you know, it was it. So there are some people who had an established career and then, they found this worrisome, so they took this leap of speaking up, and then, you know, something happened to their career. For me, it was like, I was just starting out, and um, it just happened. I didn't mean it to happen, so, you know, you can't really credit me for, like, sacrificing myself. naive to think that you could tweet anything gender critical on the internet and not lose Mm -hmm. your job. Yeah, exactly, and I also was just so fed up. I was just, I just couldn't take it anymore. I just had to say it. So I was like, whatever happens, happens. I'm going to put my name out there because I did start anonymously. Originally, for a brief time, my Twitter account was anonymous. And then I just, I was like, you know what? No, I'm going to just put my name and my face on here. I'm not saying anything bad. And I've always had that kind of personality of being like, I'm going to say what I want to say and people can deal with it. And so, that was exactly what happened to me. So, I mean, okay, so what, so, well, it was just completely devastating because as much as I cared about saying the, like, talking about these egregious lies from the trans camp, I also cared very, very much about my job, my career, because, um, so I'd graduated from college a year prior it took me a bit longer to graduate college because I had worked for a couple of years. But um, I graduated college. I had a degree in Russian literature. And I wasn't exactly sure what, what to do. And I decided to try to go into publishing. I wouldn't have to go to grad school for that, just do some internships. So that's what I did. And I worked pretty hard and um, went through some weird things already in publishing because it's a weird industry. But I did eventually get hired and I was so excited because assistant literary agent is like an agent just in training. 
So I felt like, oh, I've made it. Like I finally got a career path. First time in my life, I'm really on a career path. I can see what my future will hold because this is a great job for me. You know, not only do I like it, I get to read manuscripts and, you know, work with authors, but I also get to make my own schedule, work from home, like kind of almost be my own boss in a way because you work on commission. So it was very exciting for me. And to have that all kind of pulled out from under me in one Sunday night was horrible. It was brutal. Like I was in shock and um, I was lucky because I had my family around me and they were super supportive and that's how I got through it. But I mean, it was so, so painful because I knew I lost my job, my career. And then on top of that, I go online and people are starting to mob me. And so my name is now being smeared. And I'm someone who never had an online presence before. Like if you had Googled my name prior to cancellation, you wouldn't even find me. So all of a sudden, I'm known for being a transphobe. And I had only joined Twitter very recently, very shortly before that. Ironically, at the suggestion of my boss, who then fired me, because he told me like, you know, get on Twitter. It's great for networking and publishing. And so all the people I had followed in the publishing industry were talking shit about me, were saying, excuse my language, but they were saying that I was a bigot and it was so good I got fired and you got to get rid of bigots and da 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 And I was just like, oh my God, like these are the people I was going to try to learn from and work with and everything. So luckily for me, by the next day, and that was a horrible long night but the next day um the support started coming and like turf twitter found it and it kind of just exploded especially in england in the british press uh, i was pretty silent over here from the press but um and then that's when i just and like i knew right away i was gonna you know stand by what i said and everything but it was and then there were even people in my own fam my own extended family who thought i was evil you know, one person. So it's like, and I'll probably never talk to him again, you know, good riddance, but it was horrible. It, yeah, <laughs> it's still, it's emotional to talk about stuff because of the, the bombardment that I felt under just, you know, so suddenly. Yeah. If you were to come to me as a client and tell me you were feeling grumpy, irritable, lethargic, stressed out, or unfocused, I'd want to do a thorough assessment of your lifestyle. And one of the first elements we'd look at is the quality and quantity of your sleep. You need at least a good seven hours of refreshing sleep every night in order to be your best self. There are many things that can get in the way of that. A demanding job, a new baby, or just plain bad habits, for example. But if you're having difficulty falling or staying asleep for the simple reason that you're too hot, you're too cold, or you and your partner don't agree on the temperature, Look no further, I have just the thing for you. And since this is not therapy, but a podcast, I can actually sell you stuff. So I'm gonna genuinely recommend that you check out the Pod Pro Cover by 8Sleep. It's the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. Personally, I have mine set to run on autopilot so that my bed is warm when I get in, cool in the middle of the night, and warm again when it's time to wake up. I sleep very soundly this way. 
Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being, the quality of your work, and the lives of the people you touch. So go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout for up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the United Kingdom, select countries in the European Union, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. So there was a whole time after that initial devastation where you must have been just reorienting, like, well, what do I do now? Because I I thought I was on this trajectory. Um, You clearly had a a passion for literature. You saw yourself going into publishing. Now, at the beginning of your career, the whole publishing industry hates you as far as you you can tell. Um, What was that? process like for you? How long did that last? And and how did you gradually start to formulate a new vision for what your life could be? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, in some ways, I've kind of just been going through that period more recently, because immediately after I got canceled, I kind of just hit the ground running and started doing my interviews. Because like I said, I had already set up a podcast. So um I was ready to go. I had actually already done an interview with Megan Murphy, who's like a really well-known radical feminist and talks about this stuff. But um, so I had just started dipping my toe in this. And so I was, you know, ready to speak out about it before I got canceled as well. But um, then I had a bit of an audience. People were interested. And so I started um, doing weekly interviews on my YouTube channel. And I did that for about a year. And I interviewed, you know, all kinds of people, lawyers, journalists, a lot of lesbians, because back then almost it was just lesbians talking about this. And um, so I really just made myself so busy. And for about a year, I spent just every day I worked on Plebity, on our nonprofit, the fund, my podcast. And then um, I met MK Fain, who is a... Um, she runs the website 4W and their feminist news, radical feminist news. And so then her and I had this idea to start Identity Crisis, a podcast basically like geared towards, you know, people like us who were expressing these heretical views. And so I was just super, super busy. And then after about a year of that, I decided to stop trying to make that my full-time job because it's so hard to make money off a nonprofit. And so that part that piece just wasn't working and so I kind of like pulled back from that side of things and um that's kind of when everything hit and then that was when I kind of went through like a bit of a depression and a bit of like what do I do now what is happening and um you know it was like there was something where MK Fain my co-host on Identity Crisis she wanted to do an episode of how to survive cancellation And I told her, like, I don't know, because I don't know how to tell people how to survive. We did end up making it. But, um, I mean, it's really hard to tell people because everyone's individual life is going to look so different under these conditions. But, um, yeah, I mean, everything looks different in the wake of cancellation. But, I mean, it's so, so much better because... Even though I only had that job for a month, I was already starting to feel like, okay, I'm going to have to silence myself. I'm going to have to go along with things. And 
I don't want to live like that. So it's a, it's just a better way to live, mm. to be able to be honest. So it was a struggle, a struggle financially, struggle to figure out how to spend your time and energy as someone who is essentially self-employed when you'd been planning to work for an agency. Um, you figured it out. And what are some of the things you discovered along the way about what makes it worthwhile? Well, I mean, I think that it felt worthwhile all along, even though it was painful because, you know, it, it was, it really is such an important topic. I mean, and we haven't really delved into the actual issues yet, which it's kind of refreshing to not be asked, like, so what did you tweet? What did you tweet? Not that I mind that at all, but like, it doesn't even matter because it's about free speech. But and it is ultimately, it's all about free speech. That's what I discovered. But the issues themselves, the gender issues, that was how I got into it. And I mean, I care deeply about it. And since that happened, things have gotten so much worse. We have a Supreme Court justice who won't say what a woman is. You know, we have kids being cut up in the name of this ideology. And then we're all told that to not go along with that is bigotry. It's this mass lie and they're it's so offensive just as a human being with a brain to be told you have to go along with this that you have to say like the sky's not blue you know the emperor's clothes are beautiful that's what it feels like and that's just unacceptable so there's there's so much it, it's so much better to live like that and then also you get to meet people who are like-minded and that's that's the best part because through the internet I've been able to meet some amazing people who like understand this stuff and I was lucky enough that I had friends before who understand this stuff because I was always honest about my views with my friends but um but I think it was I don't know if it was Graham Linehan or Artie Morty and they have also been, you know, canceled in their own right for the same topic. And they're on YouTube. And um, who said, like, this is when you make, like, the, it's like the better friends portion of life or something like that. So you can meet people in the trenches who, you know, make it worth it. And I don't know. I think this just comes down to what Jordan Peterson said. Like, pick your poison. You got to go with being honest. It seems like there's different things at stake uh, for for each person, of course, but speaking in broader strokes for your generation, right? Because some of the people who are older and more established, the things that they fear are loss of career, loss of reputation, which of course those things change for you as well. But, you know, someone in their 40s or 50s who's, you know, trying to put their kids through college in the next decade. And, you know, that's a different set of needs from the set of needs that you have when you're you're in your 20s and presumably unmarried, you don't have kids, you're just in a different chapter of life. I, I imagine that there are more people of your generation for whom the consequences of saying anything would be social more than anything. I mean, yes, of course, you fear loss of career, but it just seems like you can't be in your 20s and not be pro-trans or else I mean, or else what? Give us give us the picture of the inside life of a 20-something who objects to this stuff. 
Yeah, no, I mean, you're hitting the nail on the head because, and I can tell you, because I was in the epicenter of this stuff. I was in college in New York in 2015 when the Time Magazine cover came out, the trans tipping point with Laverne Cox on it. And that's when I learned about what transgenderism was. Like, I knew a little bit. I just was trained as a very young child. Like, it's basically like being gay. It's part of, you know, the same thing, compassion and everything. I was like, totally cool with that. But then when, and, um, and I was going to a small liberal arts college in New York that I ended up dropping out of. So I was right in the thick of it. This was the most woke, like totally liberal, but they think they're super lefty and progressive. And, um, I just knew that I could not say a word about this or else I would be socially shunned. I didn't speak up publicly then. Like I didn't have, I just kept to myself because there were many things that divided me from those types of students. But I think I was lucky that I didn't go and make friends with all these people and then realize that I had this huge divide because then, I mean, you're socially screwed. So I had a different experience because I wasn't in those social groups, but my friend MK, Mary Kate Fain, she did. She had that experience because she believed this stuff from the, like early on, she believed in transgender ideology and she would convince people of it, which I find so funny because she's so, she's so smart and persuasive. So like she was more, she was effective. She'll be effective for whatever side she argues for. But, um, she's not like the biggest turf, but she saw inconsistencies when she realized you can be transgender, but you can't be transracial. How does that work? And she was genuinely asking, like, I want to know because I want to know how to be supportive of trans, be the best ally I can be. So let me find the answer. And she went and looked and she did her work and she listened to a black trans woman and educated herself. And she came out thinking this makes no sense. I think I might be a turf. And that's exactly what happened to her. And she lost so many friends. She was treated so terribly in her social circles because she was in lefty circles. And um, she was doing like vegan activism and stuff like that. So if you are in this age group and you're in the typical liberal mainstream culture, you will be hated, like hated they make it out to be like the new, you know, racist, like as racist as you could be, like you go around saying the N-word. Like if I were to go around to many people my age and say trans women are men, they would be so triggered. It would be like I said, some horrible racial slur in their eyes. And that's how they would treat me. And they think you can treat those types of people any which way because they don't largely, the woke people, they don't believe in freedom of speech. So they think you can justify any measures against the people whose speech they call harmful. Right. It's like you're, you're dead to them. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's really quite a tough call for someone to make when they're young, vulnerable, still looking for community caring about their reputation and identity, still figuring things out, um, need others to have positive impressions of them. Those are really hard risks to take. Um, mm -hmm. I want to shift focus for a moment um, because you are very interested in the topic of gender 
and you've been writing about it. I know you've been working on a piece about Dr. Gallagher. Is that how you say her name? Dr. Sint? Mm -hmm. I think it's Dr. Gallagher, Gallagher. but I'm not 100% sure she's Irish. Right. Okay. And I don't, I don't know. I know how her first name is spelled, but I I don't know how it's Mm -hmm. pronounced. Do you? So I, I believe her full name is Siv Siv Gallagher. Gallagher. But if anyone Irish is listening and I'm wrong, please don't correct me. Yeah. So this is, this is the lady who is a colloquially colloquially known for quote, yeeting the teats. Um, yeah, let's, let's get into this lady. Yeah. So basically, you know, picture the Wicked Witch in the Hansel and Gretel story who lures the children in with, you know, candy house and then pushes them into the oven. Not saying that about Dr. Gallagher, because I don't want to get sued or anything, but just put that picture in your mind. Now let's talk about Dr. Gallagher. So she is a Miami-based plastic surgeon. And she's on TikTok. So she's, there are a lot of such surgeons in the US, unfortunately. But she's notable because she goes on TikTok, the app of the youth, and advertises to them with their slang, like you said, and with their little songs that they play over the videos and everything. So she has many, many TikTok followers and she does all these cutesy videos of her. She's very like, you know, she has this nice smile. She's this blonde woman. Like, she's in, she's herself an elder millennial. Um, and she's telling kids that they can get this procedure. It's no big deal. And when I say this procedure, I'm talking about double mastectomies for minors. She does, like, the full gamut but um, of trans surgeries, I believe. But one of the most, well, the most common trans surgery is a double mastectomy. And that's removal of both breasts. And it's it should be reserved for women who have breast cancer, typically. Um, but it's now being done electively on women who identify as not women. They, they don't even necessarily have to identify as men. They often identify as just non-binary. Um, and this doctor, she advertises her services. She says, oh, it doesn't hurt more than a wisdom tooth removal. And, you know, very, very few people regret it. Well, that's just not true. We know people regret this. We have a lot of detransitioners speaking up now, and a lot of them are bravely putting their face to it now. Um, I spoke to one of her patients, her former patients, a young woman who had her breasts removed. And um, she, Grace, she goes by Hormone Hangover on Twitter. And she went to Gallagher. She trusted this person. She wasn't a minor at the time. She was in her early 20s, very young woman, dealing with identity issues, mental health issues. And she was told that this was the right thing to do. She had her breasts removed. That's a permanent surgery. She can never breastfeed now. You know, they, they took away the function. It's not just a matter of cosmetics, which is important enough. We shouldn't downplay that in terms of the of how, how a woman wants to look, but, you know, it also destroys the function. And Abigail Schreier pointed that out in her book. Usually plastic surgery, the limit is that it's not supposed to alter the function, just the form. But transgender surgery damages the function of the body parts that they operate on. So this woman, I mean, it's one of the creepiest things to go look at her TikTok account, go look at her Instagram account, see how she peddles her flesh craft to kids. And very, very proudly so. 
I mean, it's that's why I was drawn to writing about her because it's so shocking, it's so egregious, and you just wonder, does she feel anything? Does she how does she sleep at night? Yeah. It's like I mean, wasn't there a time that you could advertise cigarettes to minors as well? Yeah, good point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I find people like her really horrifying. And it's it's just shocking that it's not obvious to anyone who looks at this stuff that um, there's obviously a social incentive, to say the least. There's a social incentive coming from the peers. Um, but also there are these adults who are normalizing this as part of the culture rather than just a youth trend. Um, you had said that uh, people on the far left consider the term free speech to be a conservative dog whistle. Can you say more about that? Yeah, so, I mean, far left is tricky to define because I don't think that what is currently called the left is really true to, like, in any way, traditional leftist values. And this is a discussion I always have with my dad because he is an old school leftist. And he could not like get all these young, all these young people calling themselves leftists who were clearly betraying all of the ideals that he believed in as a left, believes in as a leftist. So, and by the way, what Plebity is doing now that I've kind of stepped away from Plebity um, but we still, but not the free speech fund, but in terms of the media platform, um, my dad is still doing it now with some other writers as well, some really great writers. And what they've decided to do is they've decided to do, this is free speech for leftists. So if you're a leftist and you believe in free speech, this is your home, plebity. I personally don't identify as leftist, um, but it's so clear that the people who do today, the mainstream left or the liberals or the wokes or whatever you want to call them, they abhor free speech. They hate it. They think free speech, first of all, is synonymous with hate speech, which they need to first of all understand that we, that hate speech, we don't have hate speech laws in this country because hate speech is free speech, but they think hate speech is just purely hateful speech. And um, they go about everything wrong because censorship just makes the idea is that you're censoring more attractive, gain more esteem and, you know, more allure to people who don't know about them. So even if we are talking about hateful ideas, censorship is the wrong way to go because it gives them more power in a way. And we've seen that throughout history many times. We're seeing that right now with transgenderism. But um, people are getting sick of being shut up about this. But yeah, I mean, that's what I experienced when I got canceled. It was like, all these people who call themselves on the left. And at that time, I did consider myself a leftist. You know, when I was younger, I was like in the Green Party and then I was in a socialist group. I was very much a leftist. But there is no room on what is currently called, calls itself the left for anyone who disagrees. They have such a rigid authoritarian outlook and they really are authoritarians. And it's very bizarre. They do not defend the value of free speech, even though it would benefit all of the causes they claim to promote, like racial justice, social justice, minority rights, and all those things. 
As a therapist, I've gotten an up-close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out, it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being, like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar. And it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving yourselves the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. Let's talk about that term hate speech. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of people get suspended or permanently banned from Twitter for saying things that weren't controversial 10 years ago. I myself have been through this. Um, and... I, I can't remember the exact language, but when you um, get suspended for a certain tweet, it'll say this was, you know, violating our rules against hate speech. And then it says you may not promote violence against, threaten or harass people on the basis of all these protected characteristics, right? And of course, gender identity was recently added to that. And that's part of how we're here. But I've yet to see a situation in which someone was suspended for this supposed violation of the rules in which they were promoting violence against threatening or harassing anyone on the basics of on the basis of demographics but i question that because i think why does it even have to be about demographics shouldn't you have a rule against promoting violence against threatening or harassing people and aren't those already laws if you threaten someone, if you say that someone else should be harming someone, or if you um, harass someone. I mean, there is a legal definition of harassment, and and the laws already protect us from those interpersonal crimes, which are quite intimidating, right? So why does it even have to be on the basis of demographics? Now, I'm somebody who I, I don't believe in, in attacking people for their demographics, but I also think that that applies in ways that people on the far left would disagree with. Like, I, I think that you shouldn't attack people for being white or male or heterosexual or not identifying as trans. You know, they call that cisgender, but I just call it 
someone who doesn't identify that way. Um, you know, I think that those should also be protected characteristics. If we're going to protect people based on demographics, then why is it okay to come, come at anyone for their demographics, period? But, you know, you could also just as well take away that part, take away the demographics part and just say, don't threaten people, don't promote violence, and don't harass people. And then, you know, maybe we could argue over what constitutes harassment, but like, that's what blocking is for. If someone's harassing you on Twitter, you can block them. So, you know, then, okay, well, if you slander them, okay, if you're spreading misinformation about them, if you're trying to get lots of people to believe something that's actually not true about a person, you know, and then, (laughs) and then people like you and I end up being the victims if you, if you put it that way, right? Um, but but this term hate mm-hmm. speech, I mean, anything can get labeled hate speech. And what's really funny is that a lot of my critics accuse me of hate speech. Um, and every single negative review I've received on Apple Podcasts so far has the word hate in it, always accusing me of hate. But these people seem so hateful. Like, I, I generally, like, I, I don't feel like the quality of hate or the emotion of hate really, like, defines me or comes through my vibe to like anyone who's listening in earnest. I'm just not a hateful person in general. And I think if you're paying attention, you'll you'll notice that. But it's interesting how the people who are pointing the fingers and accusing other people of hate speech are oftentimes the most vitriolic, kind of venomous in, people in their own attitudes. So I think hate speech is... Um, really become its own form of dog whistle. It means something entirely different from what what we think it should mean. Yeah, I mean, I think they want power. I think that's what it, it, it gives them power to be able to point to a perfectly reasonable person and say, hey, speech, shut up. You have to do what we say. You're not allowed on our platforms. And it has given them a tremendous amount of power. This is a great movement for, you know, employers, tech companies. Um, The government uses this to crack down on us even more in different ways. Like, for a small example, there were some boys in it, not remembering which state this was, but they were, um, a, a Title IX complaint of sexual harassment was brought against them because they wouldn't use the correct, the the preferred pronoun of a student. So, the incorrect pronoun, but, um, you know, that was called hate speech and it, it, it's a power grab. It's this attempt to make certain minorities like a priest class and especially transgender women of color. You know, that's the phrase they always use. That's like their ace in the hole. Any way they want to shut their opponents, just start talking about transgender women of color or like trans suicide statistics and which are overblown and you know, falsely represented and also wildly irresponsible to even um, promote this narrative of a suicide epidemic. And they talk about a genocide against trans people, which is just such falsehood. That's just such BS. It's so offensive to the concept of real genocide. Um, There is no genocide against trans people. But the fact that they use that word shows us that they're trying to make trans people a people. Like, black people or like Jews or something like that, where you can say, you know, discriminating against them is this horrible, huge crime that harkens back to slavery and Hitler and all these things. 
And it's just, they've, they've gotten so much power and status. People who use this, like professors who use this and different, you know, we see academic, like the Twitter academics that we see screaming about this stuff and calling everything hate speech. It's so good for their careers. And some of them really do believe it, but either way, it gives them a tremendous amount of power over other people. And one of the things that's ironic that does get pointed out a lot by people critical of the trans movement is that a lot of the people who are critical, who are, who they might call themselves gender critical, or they might just be like, I don't agree with that, you know, ideology. Um, a lot of them are some of the most bleeding heart, liberals, loving people who are sometimes leftists, or it doesn't matter exactly, you know, but they get called hateful, they get called homophobic, transphobic. And by the way, you don't have to be any of those things to oppose this ideology, but a lot of the people do happen to be. So it's just such, it is peer projection because they are the people spewing the hate, ruining people's lives, acting authoritarian, and then they're the ones calling everyone fascist and things like that. I want to talk now again about the publishing industry. We we started there. We departed. Um, a little while ago, I posted on Twitter asking if anyone had any questions for you. And uh, so Jesse Manisto, uh, who I interviewed on an earlier episode of this podcast, asked what you think is the outlook for publishing, uh, whether you see any signs of hope, perhaps from anyone in the field who reaches out to you. Um, and what advice do you have, Sasha, for creators in this environment more broadly? Well, hi, Jessie, because I know Jessie and she's really cool. Um, but I will say that when I got canceled, not a single person in the American publishing industry reached out to me at all. Um, some people from um, from England did because the sto- my, my story got a lot more play there. And because their reporters were just actually covering it at that time. And so, you know, there was, a, there's a, a British agent named Caroline Hardman, who's really awesome. She represents Helen Joyce and Kathleen Stock and other cool people as well. And she reached out to me and was super supportive. But, you know, this industry is absolutely in shambles. I mean, if you can call it that, but they're making out pretty well for themselves. So from their perspective, it's going great, although I don't think it can last. But I, the winds are changing. I will say that it does seem things are shifting. Um, you know, since I got canceled, Abigail Schreier published her book here in the U.S. Kara Dansky published her book here in the U.S. Um, things are starting to open up. Like even the New York Times sometimes will now run pieces that kind of question trans and kids a little bit. And so it's starting to open up. Um, my advice would be to just go hard on the truth, like go really hard against woke ideology because it, it it's, I was going to say it's a sinking ship and I'm not sure that that's true though, but I don't know that the entire structure of transgenderism is going to fall right away, but definitely the public opinion is going to change because it's not sustainable. It is the emperor's new clothes. And in that original story of the emperor's new clothes, what broke the spell was 
kids laughing at the emperor. So like once David Chappelle took this up, I knew like things were changing because once we can start laughing at it, it really, it really frees people to speak. But I mean, things are still bad. Like even David Chappelle gets, you know, periodically backlash and events canceled and things. Um, he said that he's found it hard to find people to work with him in Hollywood. But so my advice would be to just go hard on this issue because now's the time. So if you want, it's like you said, people praise you. And I used to joke about that with Mary Kate on our podcast. Like, we're not really saying anything that exceptional or intelligent. We're just stating basic facts. But the the reason people are coming to our channel and saying, wow, thank you. And, you know, this is inspirational and blah, 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 is because few people are saying it in this environment. So there is a um, space for that in terms of perhaps a like, you know, material gain. The grift. Go for the grift. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's all I can say is just lean into it. Don't don't shy away from it because that just leads to more trouble down the road. My thoughts on that more broadly, not specific to publishing, but is that as as the tides turn, it's going to be those of us who are who are kind of at the forefront of this that people are going to turn to. Um, that like, you know, <laughs> I mean, if we can, if we can keep our heads above water until then, you know, I mean, on my, on my channel, I interview detransitioners and at some point they're going to be a big enough clinical population that a younger generation of therapists is like, we need to learn what detransitioners are dealing with when they show up in our offices, you know, and then they're going to look to resources like the ones that I'm providing. So I, I agree that it's just a matter of time and, and we should keep pushing. But I am I am thinking about the publishing industry, which I know very little about. And uh, I need to start learning about the publishing industry because I I keep getting these signs from the universe that I need to start writing a book soon. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to have to do some learning. And I was just wondering who published certain books that I like. And I was wondering if you know, I was starting to look it up as we were talking. I started off with um, who publishes Jonathan Haidt, but we could look at like John McWhorter, um, Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying's book that just came out this past year, um, and some of the other gender critical books. Do you know who the publishers are for those types of books? I don't. Um, I remember looking into, I think, some of the people you said. And when I first got canceled for a while after, I kept pretty close tabs on the industry to see. And the, my answer for that is it's conservative places. From from what I looked into, that was, you know, a year ago. And I was keeping my eye on that. And I, from what I could tell, it was just it was just conservative um, agencies and publishing houses that would publish stuff like that. So that's a very, um, marginal part of the publishing industry because the industry as a whole is liberal. And I know that because when I got fired, my boss told me, you know, this, this industry is just very liberal. It's very liberal. So, you know, the point being your views, they are not going to fly here. And I was just sitting there thinking how ironic because, at the time, I considered myself a leftist. But um, 
So from what I had looked into, it was, and when people have asked me for advice on getting published, like I tell them, go to the conservative presses. Um, if I ever do become an agent again, I will, you know, please everybody who's like a dissident in this, just send me your manuscripts because I would love to represent, you know, ever like I've met so many people who have so much to say and people who are writing books and trying to get them published. Um, and they are like, where do I turn? Who, who Who's going to publish this? And I wish, you know, some of them I've told them, like, you have such an amazing story. If there was any um, decency or logic in this industry, you would, you would have a book deal. Um, but it's not the case. So yeah. Yet. Okay. Um, well, I, I'm excited for your future and, you know, to see who you team up with and, and if you get back into the industry, um, I do think that there's kind of a critical mass of those of us who are operating outside of, that culture and we bring our skills and resources. Um, so of course we will create our own companies, right? Um, while you were speaking, I was looking it up and it looks like Penguin Random House published both John McWhorter and Jonathan Haidt. Um, it looks like, uh, Brett and Heather's book, Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century was published by a company called Swift, which I'm not familiar with because I don't really track mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they're a British press. That makes sense. Um, if it's the one I'm thinking of. And that's, they're a small press. And I actually spoke with um, someone who works there, someone who founded it. And he was really cool. And he was like, you know, we were talking about all this stuff. But um, he was like, I don't really know if we have a counterpart in America. Hmm. And then a lot of the big presses do um, have conservative imprints, so like conservative branches. And it's a really bizarre setup in publishing because they corral these different things off so it's like normal publishing and then conservative or like christian so those things aren't allowed in mainstream books like one of the things i was told was like no references to god or religion because that would have to be published by a a christian press so i'm glad to hear that because i also think that but i am glad to hear that it was you know penguin it was a big company those are really prominent people and like ultimately their voices are still going to be listened to and people want to hear from them. So the publishing industry exists to make money. So if people are going to buy their books, then they will likely get published. Although there's an element of publishing houses shooting themselves in the foot by not publishing things people want to hear. So it's just a whole mess. <laughs> right. And and you wonder how, how do you get to the point of being a, a John Height or John McWhorter you know, one of these people who's just mm-hmm. so eloquent that even though your ideas are controversial, they're hard to argue with and everyone wants to listen. Um, I, I also see here Abigail Schreier was published by Reg- Regnery. Regnery? I don't know how. To, do you know mm-hmm. what I'm talking about? Regnery Publishing? Yeah. 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 I don't I don't know that company. Yeah, either. she. Um, she was I, I remember looking into that and seeing and she was. Her agent, I think, was like a so conservative agency, which is totally fine. I'm not saying conservatives shouldn't talk about this. That's not my point. My point is just like it's being sidelined. That's so frustrating mm-hmm. to me. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's like, and look at how well her book did, you know? Like people want to read about this stuff. And she, prior to that, she was not a well-known name like those other people you listed. So she became famous because of that. And people do want to read this stuff. People are going to buy this stuff. 
So, mm-hmm. yeah, woke publishers mm-hmm. take note. And as someone who does know more about the industry than I do, just out of curiosity, is self-publishing, if you self-publish, does that kind of shoot you in the foot? Does it kind of make you look like you couldn't get a deal and then nobody wants to take you seriously? Or is it becoming more normalized? Is self-publishing like like dating apps where like there was a time when dating apps were just for lonely people who didn't know how to flirt and then like for your generation it's for everybody That's I don't know why that analogy um, I just you know what it's because I watched yeah. a documentary on dating apps the other day <laughs> the analogy just oh, popped okay, into my cool. yeah interesting um well if you ask people in publishing they'll tell you you know it's the former like don't do it it's the shooting yourself in the foot route. Like, it makes you look bad. But that's because they rely on people seeing it that way. They rely on the stigma of self-publishing. And the publishing industry, it's weird because they, um, the whole thing exists to, like, you know, take money from, from authors' talent. And... Um, and of course, like, yeah, they distribute, they have a real purpose, which is to create the book and distribute it. But, um, (laughs) and this is kind of a funny thing to say about literary agents, but they kind of technically don't need to exist, like, in a state of nature, whatever literary agents wouldn't exist, because they just exist to get people published. Um, that's the way the industry is set up. You have to have an agent to get published by a big publishing house, or really by any. So the industry is so impenetrable. It's so unforgiving. Like, even if you do get published, they give you tiny royalties and, you know, things like that. So I'm not anti-self-publishing. And if you can have word of mouth and your own platform, then that can be a great way to do it, actually. Um, But I the one thing that I see with self-publishing is, like, make sure you get an, a professional editor because those little things matter, things like that. Um, but I do hope to see more people just self-publishing because it, it's they, they are gatekeepers, the, the big companies, and their monopolies increasingly so and everything. So, yeah, I'm in mm-hmm. favor of it. But you'll probably hear, if you ask people in the industry, they'll probably poo-poo it. Do self-published books make it into bookstores? I mean, I know a lot of people don't go to bookstores anymore. They go to Amazon, Kindle, uh, Audible. Mm-hmm. I think they can. I think you can put them into bookstores. I'm not, but I'm not 100% sure. So you're in favor of self-publishing. You think that it just removes barriers. And, of course, a lot of self-published books aren't ever going to make it very far. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't yeah. go for it. Yeah, well, and same with professionally published. Yeah. Um. Same with professionally published, because I think it's like only one out of five books is a commercial success. But I guess if I were advising a friend who had a book to publish, I would say, or was writing a book, I would say, try to get it published professionally first. And then if that doesn't work, get it self-published just because you will get so much more reach and like it gives it that stamp of legitimacy. I just think that shouldn't necessarily be that way. Um... But for practical reasons, I would say st- I would say still try to get published professionally. Okay, well I could pick. And plus, there really is a benefit in having like all these professional editors and things like that. So maybe I'll pick your brain on this more one on one sometime. 
I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com slash shop, where you will find goods and services I have personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. Sure. Uh, what haven't we covered for our listeners that we might still want to cover? Hmm. I just wanted to say that there was a re- okay. There's a really good historical example about free speech that I wanted to give. That um, in Germany prior to World War II, there were hate speech laws in place, similar to what Germany has now, and they were actually used to prosecute Nazi propagandists right before the Nazis took power. So this just drove more more attention to their ideas. It gave them a platform. It made people say, huh, the government really doesn't want us to hear from them. What do they have to say? Maybe they have something of importance to say. And that's exactly how it works. And then, you know, we we saw what happened. So um, that's the important thing I would say about free speech is like, because you reminded me of that when you were talking about free speech and hate speech and um, the idea that you can just let somebody decide what's hate speech is so dangerous because all, no one's going to like, not how to phrase this correctly. You're never going to be able to have everyone agree on what's hate speech or what's morally right to say. In fact, there's really no good way to actually legally distinguish good speech from bad speech. And I've learned all this from talking to constitutional lawyers and free speech experts. And um, so I would say, you know, woke people, think about what you're doing. Free speech is completely destroying, like your suppression of speech is completely going to destroy your own cause, I hope. But, you know, just keep doing it, I guess. Yeah, it's like, well, who gets to decide? Right. Who gets to decide what constitutes hate speech? That is probably a good indicator of who holds the power. And then that really calls into questions all of our understanding is of who's the oppressed and who's the oppressor. You know, how come I don't get to say that it's hate speech? The idea that the idea that a man can be a woman because he puts on a padded bra and dresses around or dances around in a dress. Like what if that, what if I consider that hateful, you know, or what if I consider it hateful that people say that it's um, in any way morally acceptable to butcher young, healthy bodies and rearrange them like, like Frankenstein dolls. I mean, I consider that hateful, right. But I don't have the power to point my finger and say that's, that's hate speech. Now these people should get fired from their jobs uh, now these people should not be allowed to express their views on social media. So I think it's a real indicator of where where the power actually lies. And I think you're unfortunately right in your observations earlier about how certain people are very motivated by the drive for power. And those those are the same people, again, who do a lot of projecting and have a whole worldview about how life is all a quest for power and that that's what they think they're fighting. But in my opinion, that's what they're actually representing themselves Right. The rest of us have many motivations, powers, but one of them, right? Like love, connection, meaning, purpose, uh, (laughs) joy, enlightenment, uh, value, connection. I mean, there's just a lot of things that we can be motivated by 
uh, and some people are really, really driven to, um, to power. And I, you know, from a psychotherapist perspective, I really would like to unpack that. <laughs> um, mm. but I, but I think we'll leave it there. That's, that's really fascinating. And, and for the record, just for anyone who's listening, uh, in bad faith and thinking about how to straw man this argument. I, I don't think anyone has made it to this point in the conversation who's not listening in earnest, but I do have some haters out there. And on the off chance that they actually make it all the way through this episode and are trying to straw man our position, you did not just say that you, you did not just liken our side to Nazis. That's not what you're trying to do there. What you were trying to point out though, is that in Nazi Germany, um, anti-hate speech laws, although we could all see why those would be beneficial in theory, because Nazis were actually promoting genocide of a certain race of people, well, of several races and classes of people, right? Like Nazis are, are the epitome that everyone likes to point their finger and accuse each other of being, of people who want genocide of other demographics of people. We get that, right? But the fact that even when there was the worst kind of hate speech that attempting to censor that backfired. That's, that's a cautionary tale, you know, for the record, I just want to clarify that I don't think that the things are, that are currently being censored as hate speech have anything in common with Nazi hate speech. But I think you're making a point that it is human nature to be curious about why are things off limits? Yeah. And you know. Yeah, and I think it's happening now with with racial rhetoric again. Like people are getting more interested in racist, segregationist rhetoric, divisions and all those things and um because the ideas have been kind of censored, maybe out of good intention originally. But um and you know, it has been very strange for me to be called a Nazi because I am a Jew, by the way. <laughs> oh so yeah, that like, happened to me too. I've been called a Nazi. I'm half Jewish and I've been called yeah, a Nazi. Okay. I was like, well, I knew that would happen someday. Check that off the list. First time being called a Nazi. Right. And what was it for? Like not for, but like what was it? Oh, in like something gender related, of course. Right? right. Exactly. Me too. It was for saying it was for platforming a, a young lesbian woman who said, you know, they're we're being pressured to be right. trans and then they're like fascist Nazi. So, I mean, yeah, thank you for making that clear. It's not saying like, Oh, just all these views are great. All these views are equally good. It's not saying I personally think, you know, you can't tell good from bad. Of course you can. You, we can personally distinguish good speech from bad speech, but legally you, it's very dangerous to do so. And, um, because you're always going to then find someone who thinks your speech is offensive and your speech is hateful. I think that the, woke people are the real authoritarians and they are the ones who are promoting these terrible ideologies that are hurting real people like you said so if anyone's a nazi it's them <laughs> i'll just leave it on that note you're the exactly nazi like them and just calling my opponents nazis yeah. no but i mean they're they're pro race racial segregation like how did we get here i mean i believe in sex segregation and i don't believe in race segregation and my ideological opponents believe in race segregation and don't believe in sex segregation. Um, I, yeah, like how did we get here, right? And and that question that your friend mm -hmm. asked of, you know, what's the difference between transgender and transracial? I think it's a valid question because if you look at reality, 
Um, sex is a, a much clearer biological reality and it's, and it's binary. Race is not nearly, I mean, you can look at race in terms of skin color and all these other things, but we're all a mixture, right? You can, you can be anywhere on any kind, on a multidimensional spectrum when it comes to race. Race is not a binary, Right. And mm-hmm. and there's so much gray area in terms of how a person, quote unquote, identifies racially because of the fact that we all have some degree of mixed heritage and we all have different combinations of cultural influence. Like, I, you know, I have very little African in my blood if I get it tested, but like I grew up around black people and black culture was part of my youth. Right. So like what race am I? You know, <laughs> right. Whereas. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's absolutely nothing, nothing that you could do as a male to become a female. You can try to mimic the secondary sex characteristics. That's the, that's the closest that you can possibly get. Sex is binary. The, and it's just, it's just crazy that we're living in a time that people are trying to make race such a big deal and such a defining part of who you are. And to put people into these categories that a lot of people can't even fit into, um, but they're trying to erase the reality of biological sex and what makes males and females different. Um, and there's mm-hmm. real consequences for that because uh, last time I checked, males are six times more likely to commit a violent crime than females are. Males are physically stronger and able to overpower females. The vast majority of sexual assaults are done by males. I mean, you know, the <laughs> There are real consequences for ignoring sex differences. Um, but I think I think that's probably a good place to wrap up. Um, so Sasha, tell folks what you're up to now. I know you're you're not making Plebity Free Speech Fund your full-time job, but it is there. Can people donate? Yes, you can absolutely donate and you can also apply to get a fund if you've been through this yourself. And um, so we're absolutely still doing the fund and um, Lebany Media still exists. I'm no longer a part of that just because, like I said, I don't identify as leftist. I'm pretty wary of being in an ideological group. But my dad is an old school leftist. He's also working with another writer who's really brilliant, Rosalie Talvez. She's a journalist, independent journalist. And so they are making Plebity a home for free speech on the left. So check that out if that describes you. And then I'm writing for Tablet Magazine. I have a column over there. I've written about censorship, the publishing industry, and gender. And then I'm also on Substack at Notes from the Underground, where I co-write articles with Nassim Batani. And like you said, I also have my podcast, Identity Crisis, with Mary-Kate Fain. We're on a very long hiatus right now, but um, we've had a lot of fun with that. So that's where you can find me. And people can follow you on Twitter, right? What's your handle? Yes, I am Grushenka. That's my All right, I'll put that in the show notes. Thanks so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. 
If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at sometherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.